What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the greatest and most famous hymns that we have today, probably the one that's well, most well known, is Amazing Grace. And you know, as you look at the words of that hymn, you'll know, actually become even more significant and powerful if you know the story behind uh, the man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. His name was John Newton. And you know, he personally experienced the amazing grace of God in his life, which led him to write this song. And he was a very sinful man. He was a part of the slave trade in Africa. He was extremely cruel. He was a drunkard. Uh, and, you know, as he was on these ships going back and forth from Africa, bringing slaves, you know, he was just so cruel to the other shipmen, they just despised him. And you can see how they despised him. In one of the instances, there was a storm and he fell overboard. You know, and typically they would throw something to you, pull you on board. Well, what they did is they took a harpoon and they threw it through his leg and they drug him on board because they despised this guy and you know so this was kind of his life and he was just a uh, a really sinful horrible man and then you know his ship came into this huge storm it was you know about to sink uh, and as he grew up as a boy, his mom, you know, taught him scriptures, taught him about God. And it was at that point in the midst of that storm that he prayed, God, if you get me safely to shore, I will serve you forever. You know, and God does, you know, get him safely to shore and he gives credit to him uh, and he accepts Christ as his savior. And he actually does follow through with what he says. He becomes a pastor and he, you know, serves the Lord with the rest of his life. And as he reflected upon his old sinful life, he wanted to write a song, and the, really the Amazing Grace is a song about him, about his life, and it's very personal. Amazing Grace, how uh, sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You know, as John Newton compared what he was before accepting Jesus to what he was after accepting Jesus, he described it as being lost and then being found as being blind and then able to see. Now, when he says, I was blind, but now I see, it wasn't that he was physically blind and he had some miracle that he could see. He was speaking about a spiritual blindness, that before he accepted Jesus, he was spiritually blind. And that's true for all of us. You know, before you and I accepted Jesus, we were spiritually blind. And we live in a world that many are still spiritually blind. And, you know, the last time we were in the Gospel of John, we saw Jesus do a wonderful miracle of physically healing a man who was physically blind from birth, but that man still needs to be healed of his spiritual blindness. Because something worse than being physically blind is being spiritually blind. Being spiritually blind to the truths of who Jesus is, the truths of the Bible. Why is that worse? Because you know what? If you're physically blind and you accept Jesus, you're still going to have a relationship with him and go to heaven. But if you're spiritually blind, which causes you to reject Jesus, the ultimate attorney for you is hell. 
And so what we're going to look at this morning is see that, you know what, there's a group there that this man who's physically blind, who's going to get to a point where he is, uh, he's healed physically, but he's going to be healed also spiritually. But there's another group that we've seen so often, these religious leaders, and that is one of their big problems. They are spiritually blind. And so this healing has transpired. That's where we ended in John's gospel last time. And now we're going to see the response that people have. Here's this man who was born blind who can now see and people start to recognize that and they have to come to grips with, you know, what they think happened or, or maybe they don't think anything happened. And we're going to see these responses and the response of the man himself who was healed. We're going to see a great response from him. And actually, it's going to be a great example to us because we're going to see the other main group in our text is going to be the spiritually blind religious leaders. And the way in which this man interacts and has dialogue with the spiritually blind religious leaders, I think it's just a great example to us because, you know, we have so many people in the world around us who are spiritually blind. And as believers, we have to try to engage them. And what this man does, I think, is a great example to us of how to, you know, try to reach out to those who are in that spiritually blind state. But we're also, as we note the Pharisees and the religious leaders and, and the fact that they are spiritually blind, we're going to note four things that causes spiritual blindness. You know, things that, that we don't want in our life because it leads us to this place that we don't want to be, hopefully, which is spiritually blind. And I want to note that it's not just unbelievers. Obviously, unbelievers are spiritually blind completely. They have no clue of how to be saved through Jesus Christ. But when we get saved, we can also be spiritually blind to certain things. Obviously, we're not spiritually blind to the gospel, which is great, but we might be spiritually blind to some other things in God's word. And these things that we're going to be looking at here, I can look back at my Christian life and see areas where I was spiritually blind and had to have my eyes open to certain things, that these areas that cause spiritual blindness that we're going to look at with the religious leaders are the same areas that I think bring spiritual blindness to us as well. And so we want to uh, avoid those things at all costs. So we're going to be really looking at, you know, three main things. First, how to reach out to spiritually blind people. Second, we're going to look at four things that cause spiritual blindness we need to avoid. And third, we're going to look at the wonderful truth that Jesus has come to remove spiritual blindness and help us to see that he is the way to be saved. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. You know, this man is now walking back to the temple. Remember, Jesus told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He does that. He can see. So he's going from the pool of Siloam back to the temple. And people are starting to recognize, oh, wait a second. Isn't that the blind guy? How is it that he sees? And we're going to see the response of the crowd that was there right after this miracle transpired. John chapter 9, starting in verse 8, says this. Therefore, the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, is not this who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. So when the blind man who was healed by Jesus starts walking back from the pool of Siloam to the temple, people start recognizing his face. They start looking at him, and, and there's some different you know questions that are, are going out there. Is not he this he who sat and begged? Isn't this the, the blind beggar? You know, and there's two different responses to that question. The first is definitely, yeah, 
that's him. I mean, this is definitely the guy that we've seen. And remember, we're told these are the neighbors. So these are the people who you know live right near the temple. They're used to seeing the people who are begging around the temple. Yeah, I've seen this guy for years. This is definitely the blind beggar. How is it he sees? And then there's the other response that people say, no, he's just like him. Oh, that just looks like the blind beggar. You know, there's a guy that looks real similar to him, but it surely can't be him because he can see. You know, the blind beggar is blind, so this must just be someone who looks very similar to him. And so those are the two responses. One is, it's definitely him, and now he can see. That's amazing. And the other is, no, there's no miracle here. It's just someone who looks like him. Now, the blind man kind of solves this debate by saying, no, I am he. Yes, you're right. I am the guy who used to be blind, but now I see. And once again, this man tells everyone, you know, well, now the people say, you know, how were your eyes open? He tells them, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received sight. So they say, where is he? We would love to meet this guy who healed you. Where is he who did this? And then this guy says, I don't know. And it shouldn't be a surprise because guess what? He was blind when Jesus spoke with him. He was blind when Jesus put the mud in his eyes. He was blind when he went off to the pool of Siloam. And guess what? Jesus didn't go with him. So now he comes back. He's never seen Jesus before. Where is this guy? I wouldn't be able to tell you even if I, you know, I I can't, I don't know what his face looks like. I don't know who he is. So now this crowd's kind of unsure what happened. Some doesn't, some just think he's a lookalike. Something, something miraculous has happened, but we don't know who did this. Well, you know what? Let's take him before the Pharisees. So now we're going to have, for a big section, the Pharisees interrogating this man. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, and the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I wash and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Now notice here that John starts off giving us a very important bit of information. He tells us that it was a Sabbath when Jesus made clay and opened the eyes of this blind man. Now remember, Jesus is the one who initiated this miracle. He is the one who sought out this man. He is the one who picked the day of when he was going to heal this man. I'm sure this man begged there pretty much every day. That was his livelihood. So Jesus could have waited till the day after the Sabbath, but he chooses to do this miracle on the Sabbath. But notice that Jesus also purposely chooses the way in which he would do the miracle. And we looked at last time, it was kind of an odd and actually a little bit gross way. You know, he spits in the ground, rubs some spit and dirt and puts that on this guy's eyes and think, well, well, that's kind of weird that that he would do that. But you know what? I think he purposely chooses to do that not only on the Sabbath, but to do that miracle that way. And the reason I think that's important to note is because I've mentioned before, you know, the religious leaders added many rules and regulations to the Sabbath that God never intended. 
God's intention for the Sabbath was to be a blessing to people, to give them a day of rest. And what these religious leaders did in adding these rules and regulations kind of ruined that. It took away the blessing, it took away the rest, and they put all these different intricate, elaborate different rules and regulations that God never intended. And one of those rules and regulations came to, you know, making mud or making clay. And, you know, typically you would use water, you would knead it. It was a a bit of work if you were going to make, you know, bricks or something like that and so they would say you know what you can't do that because that's work okay well that makes sense that is work but then they got more extreme they said well not just that you can't even spit on the ground because if you spit on the ground your spit might go into the dirt and make some mud now you can spit on a rock that's okay because that's not going to make any mud but if you spit on the ground that's unacceptable on the sabbath because you know now you're going to be guilty of making clay And so it's interesting that Jesus, knowing the foolishness of this, this is not something that God established, this is something that was man-made and added, that he purposely spits on the ground, makes this mud, knowing that they would consider that as a breaking of the Sabbath, and he does it on the Sabbath to heal this man. So with that information, I want us to look at the response of the religious leaders, or specifically the Pharisees, with this interrogation. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I wash, and I see. Now remember, when they hear this, they're thinking, well, first of all, it's the Sabbath, and if he put clay on your eyes, he has broken the Sabbath, which leads to the first response from the Pharisees, and they say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. That's their conclusion. Well, surely, you know, they're not even looking at the fact that a blind man from birth now sees, well, this man, he broke our uh, rules, he broke our traditions, he broke the Sabbath according to them, and so surely he can't be from God. Now, this first response from many of the Pharisees reveals the first thing that causes spiritual blindness, which is when we believe and follow man-made rules and regulations over God's word. You know, and that's what the Pharisees are guilty of here, that they're ultimately just following their own man-made rules and regulation over what God's Word said. You know, this is something that they established, something that they put together. This was never what God intended, and so they're establishing and, and following this over the Word of God. And this is why so many people are spiritually blind who are religious people. People that have ultimately accepted and follow man-made rules and regulations that ultimately at the heart of it all is you can work your way to salvation. You can work your way to God. And there's so many of them that are spiritually blind because of this reality. I'm sure that you have experienced that, you know, maybe a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon coming to your door. And if you've allowed them to come in and you actually have a conversation with them, it doesn't take long to realize how spiritually blind these people are and the reality is you know they're spiritually blind because they're following man-made rules and traditions over God's word now this isn't just something that you know uh, non-believers are guilty of this is something that Christians can be guilty of as well we follow man-made rules and traditions over God's word You know, we have this, you know, a lot of denominations have different traditions and, you know, I grew up in different denominations. I'm sure, you know, you've experienced things. And, you know, as I got older, one of the questions I would ask is, you know, why are we doing this? You know, what's the biblical basis? Where are the verses that we kind of come back to that says, you know, this is why we started this. This is why we're doing this. You know, and sometimes there are traditions that you just realize that's just something that people came up with. And there's no real biblical basis for it. 
And so we shouldn't be following that. We shouldn't be continuing in that. But, you know, I've been guilty of that in my life, of following man-made rules and regulations over what God's Word says. And one of the best ways to not get caught up in that, one of the best ways to be aware of, you know, hey, I should steer clear of that, is know your Bible. You know, one of the reasons that people kind of just, you know, follow along blindly to that is they don't know their Bibles to know that, wait a second, that's not biblical. Wait a second, that goes against what the Bible says, or that's something that the Bible never tells us to do. And so the more you know your Bible and the more you spend time in it, the more you'll be aware of, well, that's a man-made rule. That's a man-made tradition. You know, whenever you're in a church like ours or any other that you go to and there's some tradition or rule, you should always ask, you know, what biblical text do you have for us to do that? And if there isn't one, then it's like, well, you know what, then I'm not following that rule because there's not a biblical reason for it. You know, recently I watched a video of several pastors, they're kind of bigger name pastors because they have very large churches in the thousands, and they were kind of just coming together to debate different things, and so they were coming from very different, you know, uh, denominational and theological backgrounds, um, and there was one guy on this, um, one pastor, and he was trying to justify that he had his worship team sing Highway to Hell from ACDC. Now, I don't know if you're aware of the song Highway to Hell, but it's definitely a song, you know, basically glorifying going to hell. I mean, you know, the the chorus is we're on a highway to hell and they sing it over and over again. Like, this is wonderful. We can't wait to get there. And so he's trying to justify like, hey, it was okay that we did this because, you know, my sermon and everything was, you know, trying to help people see they're on a highway to hell. And and we believe that this song would lead them to Jesus. But, you know, you look at anything in the Bible about worship. Anything that's an example of worship, anything that teaches us about worship, and I guarantee you, you will never come to the conclusion that you can justify singing Highway to Hell in a time of worship. And I don't even want to imagine what the congregation was. I mean, was it just more of a performance they were listening to? I mean, are their hands raised? We're on a highway to hell singing that? You know, I mean, how horrible that would be, but I don't know how it went. But the reality was this guy's trying to justify it. And fortunately, most of the other pastors on the panel were saying, absolutely not. We would never do that at church. No one should do that. But there was one other pastor who said, I would surely have my worship leader do that as well. And it's just so sad that they're spiritually blind in this area of worship that they think, you know what, this is okay. This is something that we could sing. And I just want to encourage you, these are pastors. And so understand, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of the people in their congregation are thinking, hey, this is great. You know, what other ACDC song are we singing next week? But the reality is, you know, this isn't something that should have been added to their worship. And so we need to know our Bibles so that we can not be duped by some of this stuff. Now, not all the Pharisees concluded that Jesus was not from God. Not all of them said, well, hey, wait a second. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, so surely he couldn't have done this miracle. There was a group, and I think as you go through the rest of this chapter, it's probably a very small group. Perhaps Nicodemus was in that, as we saw in John chapter 3. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea, because we'll see that he follows Jesus at the end. But, you know, we don't know who these guys are, but they come up with a different thing. They say, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? You know, as Jesus is this sinful Sabbath breaker that you claim he is, how do you heal this guy? How does he have this power of God to do this if he is what you claim him to be? And that's a great question that the religious leaders should have been pondering because the evidence is there in front of them of what has happened, and they're coming to this conclusion of, no, no, he has to be a Sabbath breaker. And they're saying, well, wait a second, how could he be if he has this power to heal? Now, many of the Pharisees say that, Jesus is a sinful lawbreaker. Others say, you know what, don't be so quick to call him that. Let's see 
Let's investigate. He did do a miracle. And so we're told that this debate brings some division among the Pharisees because now you have two different kind of views as to Jesus, his power, what is he? And then they actually ask the blind man what he thinks. And this is kind of humorous because, you know, here's an unlearned man, can't read, guarantee you that, unless maybe they taught him Braille, but I doubt it. Uh, So, you know, he's probably very unlearned. And the religious leaders were very prideful, educated. Uh, You know, rarely would they ask someone like this what his opinion is. But now there's this debate and there's conflict. They're like, well, well, let's ask the guy who was healed what he thinks about Jesus. Let's see what they say here in verse 17 and 18. But they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he has opened your eyes. He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. So as this debate's going on, they call up the blind man and say, well, you know what? We got this group here who says he's a sinner and broke the Sabbath. This other group says, how could that be? Because he does these miracles. Hey, blind man who can now see, what do you think about Jesus? And his response is, he's a prophet. And you know, you can understand that that makes logical sense for the real little bit this guy knows. This guy really only knows two things. I know his name was Jesus, and I know he healed me. That's all the information I got right now. But you know what? Now that you've asked me more about him, my conclusion would be he's a prophet. And that would make sense if you look back into the Old Testament and the prophets of God. Many of them God used to do miraculous signs and wonders. And so he's saying, you know, he's got to be a special guy like one of the prophets who had the ability to do miracles because he gave me sight. Well, this blind man's opinion does not sway or change the minds of the Pharisees who do not believe this about Jesus. And notice what we're told in verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. Now notice what this is claiming here. This group has gone from, you know what, Jesus is a sinner, we know he he couldn't have done this, to, you know what, I don't even believe a miracle happened. I don't believe that you were ever really blind. You know what, you're going around telling everyone that you can see now, but you always could see. We don't believe that you actually had your eyes healed. So that's their conclusion. There was just no miracle, and then we don't have to give Jesus any props for doing anything. We won't believe you until your parents come and testify before us and tell us that you truly were blind from birth. And so now this is how things move forward. Okay, fine. Let's get the parents. Let's have them testify and let's find out if I really was blind from birth and now seeing if they can continue with this claim that this guy was not actually healed. So now the interrogation shifts from the man who was healed to his parents in verse 19. And they ask them saying, is this your son? who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we do not, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So now this shift comes. The parents are now getting interrogated, and the Pharisees ask two very important questions to the parents. The first is, is this your son who you say was born blind? First of all, is this guy actually your son, and was he really born blind? And the parents' answer is, yes, this is our son, and yes, he really was born blind. 
Okay, so the second question is, well, then how does he now see? <laughs> and notice the parents' answer to this question, by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. Now, I want you to try to imagine being the parent of this child. We don't know how old he is now. I mean, he could have been in his 40s, his 50s, his 20s. We're not given his age. We just know he was blind from birth. But, you know, this you now see your child. They can see. I mean, how moved with emotion, how excited you would be. And I'm sure one of the first questions you would want to ask is, how in the world can you see? What happened that gave you your sight? So it's, it's very likely that even if they didn't get to speak directly with their son, they would hear the crowds murmurings and, and sharing like, hey, he's saying that this man, Jesus, gave him sight. And now they're asking them, and notice that they just want to say, we know nothing about this. Now, there's probably some truth to that if they weren't there and, you know, I don't know who did it. But notice that we're told something of why they are very much kind of pushing this interrogation away from them. Stop asking us questions and continue to ask our son questions. They say this, he is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. And we're told why. Well, why do they want to get out of the interrogation? And, and you know, usually parents want to protect their kids. And it's like, you know what? Stop asking me. Go ahead and keep asking my son. You know, we'll put him back up in the crosshairs and, and we'll kind of just, you know, step away. Well, well, why would they do that? It's a natural instinct for a parent to protect their children. And they're kind of putting their child under the bus right here. But notice what we're told. They didn't want to be interrogated. Why? Because notice that the um, we're told they feared the Jews. And the reason they feared them is the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And this is what their fear was. If they were to say, you know what, Jesus did this. And, and oh, so you think that Jesus has the power to do this. What are you saying about Jesus? Because the religious leaders claim, hey, if anyone calls Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, you're out of the synagogue. Well, what does that mean to be put out of the synagogue? Now, and today, you know, we have church discipline, and you might be asked you know, to leave a church if you're super sinful and unrepentant and, and hurting other people. But here's the reality. In our culture today, guess what you would do? You would just go to another church, and you would pretend like nothing happened. It really doesn't have that huge of an impact. Yeah, you lose the fellowship of where you were at, but sadly, in our culture, that, that's not really as big a deal. Now, in that one, it's very different. When they say, you know what, you can no longer be a part of the synagogue, but guess what? That means you can't have any relationships with anybody who goes, which is pretty much all the Jews. So family, friends, they can't talk to you anymore. You can't go over to their house anymore. It's not just in the synagogue, but also outside the synagogue. Those people that you traded with, those people that you bought stuff with, nope, not anymore. You're completely excommunicated from the culture. So it's like this was a huge thing. You know, there's only a short amount of people, mostly, you know, tax collectors, very sinful people that didn't go to the synagogue, and you don't want to be lumped in with them. And so this was a big deal to be excommunicated from the synagogue. And so they don't want that, understandably. And so they're kind of like, okay, the fear of what could happen to us is going to keep us just silent right now. Just interrogate our son some more. Please stop asking us questions. Well, this leads us to the second thing that causes spiritual blindness, which is the fear of people. You know, the fear of what people might say about you or to you or do to you, you know, it's a huge cause for spiritual blindness. One of the reasons many people won't even consider Jesus, the Bible, creation, certain sins being actually sins 
is a fear of what others would think about them, how they would label them, what they might do to them. And sadly, that fear makes many people spiritually blind and they're not willing to accept Christ because of it. But it's not just unbelievers that suffer in this way. This also impacts Christians. You know, there are many believers and pastors and churches today who are abandoning biblical truth for fear of what the culture thinks, for fear of how they'll be labeled, for fear of what people might do or say about them if they would hold to what the Bible clearly teaches on certain issues. You know, that fear has caused many Christians to be led more by cultural morality instead of biblical morality. A lot of people are now following what the culture says to be right or true as opposed to what the Bible says to be right or true. And I think one of the biggest areas right now where this fear that spiritually blinds Christians has kind of really just shown itself is when it comes to sexual identity and personal identification. You know, the LGBTQ belief system wants everyone to agree with their beliefs. It's not just a matter of we want you to know what we believe. No, no, no. We want you to agree with what we believe. And if you don't agree with what we believe, then we are going to label you with all sorts of horrible things. You're a homophobic. You're a transphobic. You're a bigot. You're this. You're that. You're the next thing. And so people are fearful of that. And it's rampant in our culture where if you would say, you know what? The Bible says this is a sin. You're labeled all these different things. And so people, well, I'm not going to say it's a sin. I'm not even going to address that anymore because of what might happen. But it's not just words now. You know, a lot of people are getting sued. You know, you get bakers who say, you know, I don't want to do a cake for you know, a gay wedding or you, know, you got things happening. If I'm in California right now, I could probably be brought up on hate crimes for this message right now. Because there is hate crimes. If you say homosexuality is a sin, which the Bible declares in California right now on the books, you can be put in jail for a hate crime because you're not allowed to say that. Thank goodness we live in Texas. But, um, you know, this is something where People are now so concerned and fearful of what the culture thinks and what they might say or what they might do that it's like, you know what, let's just abandon some of these things that the Bible clearly teaches so that we don't have any of that, you know, wrath from the culture coming our way. So this blind man's parents, they don't want to answer any more questions. (laughs) We're very fearful of what the religious leaders would do in excommunicating us from the synagogue. And so, you know what, just interrogate our son He can answer for himself. He's of age. So just go ahead and do that. And so now the interrogation is going to go back towards this blind man that Jesus healed. Verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. Well, look at now, there's been a change here. Now the religious leaders are faced with the fact that a miracle has transpired. You know, they wanted to say, you know what, this guy was never even healed. He was never blind. Now the parents come and say, no, actually, he was blind from birth. You know, they had this testimony in front of them, and so they can't deny that a miracle transpired. And so their first thing was, let's just deny it, and then we don't have to give credit to Jesus. Well, now that that didn't work, okay, well, now we want to tell you, blind man who's been healed, how you should respond to the one who healed you. Notice what they tell him. They say, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Now understand, they don't believe that Jesus is God. So when they say, give God the glory, what they're saying is, give God the glory, not Jesus. Don't you dare give Jesus glory for this. He didn't do this for you. Give God the glory. Why? Because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. 
He broke the Sabbath. So that's what they're trying to tell you. All right, you can go around telling people that God healed you, that you know God gave you sight, that's fine, but don't you dare ever point to Jesus as doing it because, hey, he is a sinful Sabbath breaker. And notice the response of this man. He's going to give many great responses you know, in this interrogation, but here's one that I love. He says to them, whether or not Jesus is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. You know, I don't know everything about Jesus. Whether he's a Messiah or not, whether he's a sinner, or Sabbath breaker, or, or these things that you're claiming. Yeah, I, I don't know that about him, but this is what I do know. And this is what I want to share with you. I was blind, but now I see. You notice a man doesn't focus on what he doesn't know. Instead, he focuses on his personal experience, his personal testimony of what Jesus has done for him. And in his personal testimony, it's powerful because the religious leaders, they can't refute it. You know, there's two parts to this personal testimony that both have plenty of evidence to back up what he's saying. The first part of his statement was, though I was blind. And they just had his parents testify to that truth. So there's plenty of evidence to say, yes, I was born blind. And now he says, and now I see. And the evidence is right in front of you. I'm actually looking at you. You can't deny the fact that I can see. And so this statement, though I was blind, now I see, is a powerful testimony that the religious leaders, they don't know what to do with. Because the evidence is overwhelming. Yes, it's true. Something miraculous happened in your life. And he's giving credit to Jesus for it. You know, one of the most important and powerful things you and I have to share with people who are spiritually blind is our testimony. You know, if you talk with a lot of people who are spiritually blind, you'll find that many ask questions, not because they're interested in learning about Christianity, not because they're really interested in learning about what you believe. They ask questions to mock. They ask questions to belittle. They ask questions even possibly to debunk Christianity. But you know what? When those questions come of, you know, where did Cain get his wife? Or, you know, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Or, you know, to some of these silly things that are thrown out at you, and maybe you don't even have an answer to some of them, that's okay. Just quickly get to the testimony. You can respond like this guy. You know what? Whether or not that's true that you're saying, or whether or not, I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, I'll get back to you. I'll investigate. I'm not just going to say there is an answer, but I don't know it. And I'll admit to it. But one thing I do know, and then you go straight to your testimony. This is what God's done in my life. I was blind, now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. Let me share with you something that you can't deny. Let me share with you what I was and now what I am because of the power of Jesus Christ in my life. And you can start, you know, posing all these silly questions all you want. And some of them I might be able to answer and some of them I won't. But I'm going to get you right back to what Jesus has done as quick as possible to have them deal with the reality of that. You know, oh, yeah, well, they, they think, well, if I can throw out these questions and just stump you, I can walk away happy and smug and not worry about it anymore. But all of a sudden, when you share your life and the story of your testimony, they have to stop. And be like, wow. And especially if they knew you before Christ and after Christ, even more so that there is a reality of look at what has happened. What do I do with that? Something's transpired. You're saying it was Jesus. So I have to either deny that or I got to figure out that in my life or what that means. But it causes them who are in that spiritual blindness to really have to question that. And this is a great thing for us just to, as we approach spiritually blind people, to recognize, you know what, our testimony is huge, and it so powerfully leads to the gospel. You know, just go straight with what God has done and bring it to you. He didn't just do it for me. He's done it for you. 
He died not only for me on a cross, but for you, for your sin, for mine, and just share with them how they can know him and accept him. And this is a great way to reach people who are in that spiritual blind state. Well, after this great response to the Pharisees' question, well, they're going to ask another question that they've already asked. Verse 26. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered and told them, I already told you, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Notice the Pharisees are not getting the answer that they want. And so instead of saying, all right, let's move on to more questions, let's just keep asking the same questions, hoping to get a different answer. Because we don't like the first answer. This is the first time when they first started the interrogation. These were the questions that they asked. And now they're maybe hoping for, you know, uh, something a little bit different. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You know, I think it's interesting. I don't think they're looking for more evidence so that they can believe in Jesus. But instead, they're trying to find something to discredit the evidence that's already clearly in front of them. This man who was born blind, that can now see, they don't know what to do with it. They're hoping to find something to discredit this so they can discredit the one who healed him. And this leads to the third thing that causes spiritual blindness, which is not being willing to accept the evidence revealed to you. You know, something we need to understand is the evidence for the Bible being the inspired word of God, the evidence for creation, the evidence for Jesus living a life being crucified on a cross, rising from the dead. You know, as Christians, there is overwhelming evidence for all of those things. And we need to be confident in that. We need to know that. But, you know, unfortunately, sometimes if you're aware of the evidence and you share that evidence with some people, some accept it and receive it and accept the gospel. But there are others, it's not enough. There are others who just don't accept it. I've had many conversations where I lay out the overwhelming evidence and and people just blow it off. Well, 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 they just want more evidence, more, more evidence. I remember I took an apologetics class and the guy said, you know what? Always at the very beginning, ask them, what is it that I need to prove to you that would cause you to accept Jesus Christ? Let them lay out the parameters. Because he says, if you don't, what's going to happen is you're going to answer this question and they're going to make you jump through another hoop. You're going to answer that question, they're going to make you jump through another hoop. And there's always going to be another hoop. So you set the parameters, and if you answer all those questions and they say, well, what about this? Well, no, no, wait a second. You told me if I answered all these things, you would believe in Jesus. I answered all those, and now you're not willing to. So now it comes back to you of saying, well, wait a second. You set the parameters of these are the things I need to know, and now you're not willing to accept it, which shows it's not an evidence thing. There's something deeper, and usually you'll find it's, well, I just want to keep sinning. That's what I found with most people. So it's not really the evidence that's hindering them. It's the fact that they don't want to change their life and surrender their life to Jesus. But, you know, we've got to be aware of the fact that, you know, when we keep denying the evidence that's clearly laid out before us, it causes spiritual blindness. And there's so much overwhelming evidence. You know, the Bible tells us all creation cries out so that no one's going to be without excuse when they stand before God that they don't know that there's a creator. He says, no, no, they, they, they reveal my invisible attributes. It's clearly seen in what I've made. You know, I've shown so much evidence that people have to now deal with and uh, accept or reject those things. And so when people do that, though, and and you share this evidence of the Bible and Jesus and things, you know, it causes spiritual blindness when you reject it. And often people will then reject Jesus. And ultimately, if they continue with that, you know, it goes to a much worse state of going to hell. Um, But, you know, it's something that also takes place within believers, 
of, hey, you know what? There's evidence. I think one of the greatest evidences that we as Christians reject is the evidence that the Bible clearly says there are consequences to sin. I don't know about you, but you know there have been so many times in my life where I have tried to convince myself that's not true for me. And it's shown in the fact that I'll just do it and think, well, nothing's going to happen. You know, it's going to be great, and I'm not going to have any consequences. I'm going to engage in this, and nothing bad's going to happen. It goes against everything the Bible says, and it goes against all my experience. Because my experience says, I do this, consequences come. I do this, consequences come. But yet there's so many times in my own stupidity where I said, you know what? I am going to ignore the evidence. I am going to ignore what the Bible says and what I've experienced and what I've seen. And I'm going to engage in this again, believing that nothing is going to come as a consequence to my life. And as believers, I'm sure we're all guilty of it. And we do it so often And it just shows, man, that's a spiritual blindness, a foolishness that says, I can continue in this. You reap what you sow, the Bible says. Don't buy into the fact that you can do this and think that nothing is going to come to you negative in your life. It's just not the reality. So the Pharisees ask the blind man. He gives them a wonderful answer. (laughs) I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? Yeah, now this guy, I love it. You know, he's just like, I get what you guys are trying to do here. You've already asked me this. I already gave you the answer. Why do you want me to tell you the same thing again? Oh, maybe it's because you want to follow him. Do you want to be Jesus' disciples? And notice he actually even says, do you also want to be his disciples? Saying, you know what? I associate myself with following him now. Do you want to follow him like I do? And now we're going to see that they don't really like that comment. Verse 28. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, and as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he's from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So this man kind of gives that you know, sarcastic response back. I'm sure he was confident none of them really wanted to be Jesus' disciples, but he throws that out there. And they respond by reviling him and saying, you're Jesus' disciple, we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he is from. (laughs) And once again, a great response. (laughs) This is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from, yet he has opened my eyes. This man with miraculous power you know nothing about. It's marvelous because you guys seem to think that you know everything, and yet you don't even know where he is from. Then he goes on to say, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Now, the blind man's given a wonderful response to their accusation that Jesus is a sinful Sabbath breaker. He's saying, well, if that's true, well, what does the Bible say? Well, we know that God doesn't hear sinners. You know, we're told in Isaiah chapter 1, Psalm 66, God is not obligated to hear sinful people who reject him. And so he's bringing up that reality. Hey, the Bible tells us this. But on the other side of the coin, we know that if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. All right, so you're saying Jesus is this sinner, so how is it that Jesus does these things? It's clear that God must hear him because God had to hear and give him power in order to heal me. But then he gets even more 
into a great defense. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And as I mentioned the last time we were there, if you look through the whole entire Old Testament, we don't have any instance of someone born blind. There are people who became blind and then were healed, but no one born blind was ever given sight. This is the first time in all the Bible that we see of someone born blind receiving sight. And this guy, obviously, he was aware of this. I'm sure he wanted to do his history lesson. Is there anyone in my situation that was ever healed? And the bad news for him was, sorry, doesn't look too good for you. This is probably something you better just get used to because your life is going to be in darkness. And so he realized this has never happened before. And now it has for me. And notice then what he says. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It's a great response. It's a very biblical response. And he's bringing this to them. You guys want to say he's a sinful Sabbath breaker. And remember, there was already this debate within the religious leaders as well, where some were saying, well, I don't know if we can call him that because look at the sign he did. That's ultimately what this guy is saying as well. Hey, if that's true of Jesus, he could do nothing if he wasn't from God. So that, that, that's, not, that's something that doesn't hold water because of the evidence of what he did proves that he is from God. So he follows this to its logical conclusion. But you know what? Unfortunately, this great response doesn't change their thinking and it doesn't change their hearts. Notice what they say in verse 34. Then they answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Now we've seen this from the Pharisees a few times. When they don't have a good answer, like with Jesus or, or with this man, you know, they don't have an answer for this great argument. They, they go from trying to answer the argument to attacking the person who opposed the argument. And we see that in our culture all the time as well. You know, we don't have any answer, so we'll just attack the person and hope that you think that person's so bad that you, know, you don't care about what they did. And so with this guy, it's like, who are you to teach us? Now remember, you know, he's this unlearned blind guy who was a beggar. And these are the religious educated people. And they look down on him. Who do you think you are teaching us? But the reality is he was teaching them some really powerful truths that they should have accepted because they were biblical, but they just blow it off. Who do you think you are? And notice what they say about him as they attack him. They say to him that you were completely born in sins. Now, remember, we looked at this when the disciples asked Jesus that odd question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we noted that that was something that was taught by the rabbis at that time, that they believed that a child could sin in the womb and be uh, punished by God with blindness or some kind of infirmity, or it could be the parent's sin. And so they're holding to that, saying, well, obviously you were blind because you were some sinful person. So they're just attacking the man instead of trying to deal with the argument. And then it ultimately results in the fact that they cast him out of the synagogue. Well, this leads us to the fourth thing that causes spiritual blindness, which is pride. I mean, this guy gives great biblical reasons, great answers to their questions. They won't consider it. One, because of who he is and their own arrogance and their own pride. You know, you're just a sinful man. You're just a blind, uneducated beggar. Who do you think you are teaching us religious Pharisees? We know the law. We know these things. In their own pride, they're kept spiritually blind. You know, and I think this is one of the biggest reasons why people stay spiritually blind. You know, pride is that thing that tells you, I can get myself to heaven. I can do enough good works. I'm a good enough guy or a good enough girl. 
And that's what so many people are holding on to, that me and myself and my own power and strength, I can make it, I can do it, I can get myself there. Pride keeps us from the truth that the Bible says, no, you can't. The only way to do it is to put your trust in the works of Jesus, not in your own. And if you continue to put your trust in your own, it's just going to lead you to hell. Humility is what opens your eyes to spiritual truth. Pride blinds it. But you know what? Christians suffer from this as well. I know I can look at my life and see where areas of pride had blinded me from biblical truth. Many of them which tell me that, you know, I can do nothing. John 15, I didn't believe that. Oh, I read it, you know, without me you can do nothing. But you know what? My own pride blinded me from that truth. And it's so many times I tried to myself and I had to fail and fail and fail before God says, will you just humble yourself? so that I can work through you, so that I can do things that I want to do in you. Because until you do, I resist you who are proud. I give grace to those who are humble. But humility helps us to have those spiritual eyes to see, but pride keeps us spiritually blind. Now after Jesus sent this blind man to the pool of Siloam, we see that he's disappeared from the scene. He hasn't been here in this whole interrogation process, but now he's going to pop back up. They've cast this guy out of the synagogue, which means they totally excommunicate him. And now Jesus once again is going to find this guy. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So after Jesus hears, okay, they cast this blind man who was he healed, out of the synagogue, they excommunicate him. Jesus was the man who found this man and healed him. And now Jesus is the man who comes back to find him again. And notice what Jesus says. Do you believe in the Son of God? You know, after all this interrogation, all these talks about who healed you and what transpired and if he's a sinful person, if he's God, what is he? Look at the, what the blind man says. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? He's ready. Look, I want to believe in the guy who healed me. I want to accept that he's the Messiah. I want to accept that he's God. But remember, he's never seen Jesus. He doesn't know that the man I'm talking to is the man who healed me. So yes, I would love to accept this guy. I am at that place now with all this interrogation. I'm even more convinced of this reality. And now Jesus says to him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Blind man's like, hey, tell me who he is. I would love to believe in him. Jesus says, hey, it's me. You're seeing him. You're looking at him. You're talking with him. I am God. I am the one who healed you. And notice how the blind man responds. He's saying, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is another one of those instances where we can be confident that Jesus is God because every other instance where someone was worshiped like an angel or a person and it wasn't God, they would always say, whoa, don't worship me. Worship is for God alone. But notice Jesus receives it. Why? Because he is God. And so he receives this man's worship, and this man believes in Jesus and worships him. But notice here, this is the beautiful part of this whole chapter, that Jesus didn't just come to take care of this physical need that this man had of blindness. He's like, I got something even bigger for you. On the same day, you're going to have two wonderful blessings. You're going to physically see, but I'm also going to bring you to a place where you can spiritually see. 
Because not only do you have physical blindness, you have spiritual blindness. And this man who receives both in this same day, he goes from being physically blind to physically see and spiritually blind to spiritually see. And he comes to accept Jesus and be saved of his sins. And we need to realize that that's what Jesus wants. Yes, he loves to meet physical needs, but there's a greater need. The one that he ultimately came for. And that is a spiritual need that people have. He wants to take people from that spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. And after he left this earth, he says, you know what? To my followers, I give you that responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I want you to be those that reach people with the truth of who I am so that they can go from spiritual darkness and they can go to spiritual light from being blind to now seeing. And one of the best ways for us to do that is to share the gospel, to share our testimony. And notice now we have one final thing that Jesus shares to the blind man. And some of the religious leaders over here, and he has something else to say to them as well. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. So Jesus, speaking to the blind man, says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. What Jesus is saying to this man is, hey, those who recognize their spiritual blindness and admit that they are spiritually blind, those are the ones that can find sight in Jesus. But those who falsely claim that they already have spiritual sight like the religious leaders did, they're going to be made blind. And you see that with them. I mean, they're staring at God himself. They're not willing to accept it. And so Jesus said, hey, for those who will admit their spiritual blindness, their need for God to help them see, they're going to receive that. But those who are arrogantly thinking, I already see, well, they're just going to stay blind because they actually don't. And so as Jesus makes this statement, some of the Pharisees, they overhear it and they say, oh, oh are we blind also, Jesus? Sneering at him, thinking, you know, surely you're not saying this about us. And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. What Jesus is saying is, hey, if you would admit your spiritual blindness, I would forgive you. I would save you. I would deal with your sin. But the reality is that you won't admit it. You won't accept that you're spiritually blind. And so, yes, your sin does still remain because there's only one way to deal with it. And that's accept me, believe in me. But your spiritual blindness keeps you from it. And that's your problem. That's your issue. Once again, we see pride keeping the Pharisees spiritually blind. They're not willing to accept. They're not willing to lay down their pride and humble themselves. You know, we live in a world full of people who are spiritually blind. The reality is sometimes we are those people. Not to the gospel, but to many different things in the word of God. And so we need to be aware of these causes that bring people to spiritual uh, blindness, avoid them like believing and following man-made rules and traditions over God's word, the fear of people, not being willing to accept the evidence that's revealed to you, and pride. Jesus came to bring sight to spiritually blind people, and he wants us to reach them. And as we see from this blind man, a great way to do that is to use your testimony to get back to what Jesus has done in your life and what he's done for them as well and share the gospel and allow them to go from being spiritually blind to be able to be spiritually able to see. We want to share with them, we were once lost, but now we're found. We were once blind, but now we see. Let's pray. Father, we are so encouraged when we look at examples in your word and we see people who you sought out 
and you met their need, not only physically, but spiritually. And it gives us such encouragement for our own lives, Lord, because we have so many, not only physical needs, but spiritual needs as well. And we know that you are the God who is not only capable, but willing to meet those needs in our life, Lord. And and I just pray, Lord, as, as we're grateful for what you have done and are doing and will continue to do in our own lives, Lord, that you would use us like you use this blind man. Lord, that we would be those willing to just share, hey, I might not know everything, but I'll tell you what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. I'll tell you what I do know about what Jesus has done in my life. Lord, I pray that you would just give us greater boldness with the spiritually blind that we work with or with that are in our families or in our neighborhoods or you know, just anyone that we encounter, that we would just be willing to be that light for you to help people to go from that place of spiritual blindness to where you help them see and they come to the truth of who you are and what you've done and hopefully a willingness to accept that for themselves and be set free. So give us that boldness this week, Lord. Help us to avoid the things that often cause us personally to be spiritually blind. Lord, that we be in your word regularly, that we be more afraid of you and what you think than this world. And Lord, that we would just humble ourselves and not allow the pride in our life to hinder us from the things that you want to reveal to us and do in and through us. And so we just ask that you would help us to leave here changed and different and more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.